It's 1 John uh, 2, 2, 28 to the third chapter to 10. And good morning again, folks. A beautiful morning. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we have, what we will be, has not been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, the sin is lawfulness. But you know that it appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And he who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who was born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Amen. Uh, we are looking at the end of John, 1 John chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And as we dive into this passage, I think it's worth us pausing for a minute to remember why this letter is written, what it's here for. A lot of books of the Bible, we don't exactly know why they were written. You kind of have to guess based off of the context, the content of the letter. Or you can look at what's happening in history and read from the history why the letter was likely written, but not with 1 John. In 1 John, we are told why this letter was written. He says in, in chapter 1, verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. And then at the end of the passage, <clears throat> at the end of the book, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John tells us that the reason he wrote this is so that as believers, when we come to this God, our God, we would know where we stand with him and that we would have joy. And I bring that up today, especially that joy part, because this is a passage with some hard truth in it. And if we're not careful, we can read these hard truths and leave this place discouraged. Leave this place maybe despairing a little bit. But if we do that, we're missing the point. The point, even of the hard truth in Scripture, is to show us who our God is and to complete our joy. It's to give us clarity. 
about where we really stand before God. And that's a real gift. So this morning, I want us to see uh, three things from our passage. Those three things are this. Uh, One, our relationship with God is based upon his fatherly love. Our relationship with God is based upon his fatherly love. Secondly, the proof of that relationship is shown in the way we live. And thirdly, our holiness is something that has been guaranteed by God. So our relationship with God, it is based on his fatherly love. That's what it says in the beginning of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That verse, that's the foundation of this whole chunk of text. That's the foundation of this whole passage. Before, you know, he's going to tell us in a second that as Christians, we need to live righteous and godly lives. But before he does that, he wants us to understand our relationship with God. He wants us to know exactly what the dynamic is between us and him. And the word he says, he says, what great love. Or if you look at the King James Version, it actually says, what, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this? And the reason for the difference is because it's an old Greek word that doesn't exactly translate into our modern English. It's, it's this word, patapas, that kind of loosely means, of what country is this love? Maybe you remember that story from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples in the midst of the storm. Do you remember? And he falls asleep in the boat. And the disciples start to panic. And they, they wake him up. And Jesus wakes up and then with just his words, calms the sea. When they see that happen, they respond by saying, What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. They're saying, where's this guy from? Something strange is is going on here. This is not like any person we have ever seen before on earth. And that's what John is saying about the love of God. He's saying something unusual, something that we have never seen. His love is, is, is not like any love that we have ever experienced. And This love, this amazing otherworldly love, John says that God has lavished it on us. So how does he do that? Well, he does it by calling us his children. Now, if you've been in the church a long time, I worry that we can hear that we are God's children, and it just kind of goes right by us. We hear that all the time, right? Of course. Christians, we're children of God. It doesn't strike us the way that it probably struck the people who read it for the first time when they picked up this letter. But this is an incredible reality that God calls us his children. I mean, I think we just need to remember that we we don't deserve that. You don't deserve it. You do not deserve to be called children of God. Uh, recently, I've been reading, uh, I've been rereading Harry Potter with my son Ambrose uh, around bedtime. 
I got a couple of illustrations coming up here that are really just going to expose our generation gap pretty badly right now. <laughs> Harry Potter, uh, if you're not familiar, uh, this, is, this, is, this one will hit like everybody in their 20s, I think. But uh, let me, if you don't know, it's the story of, of a, a guy, a little boy who becomes a wizard. Um, and in the beginning of the story, he is, uh, as he's an infant, his parents die. And he has to be taken in by his aunt and uncle. Uh, his aunt was the mother, was, was the sister of his mother. And they were enemies. His aunt hated his mother. And so she very begrudgingly chooses to adopt this child. But as they raise him up, they never let him forget where he came from. Instead of giving him a bedroom, right, he lives in a cupboard underneath the stairs. He doesn't get to go out. He never gets to do fun things. Essentially, the family, they agree to rescue him, but they let him know that he's unwanted. That he is, in fact, the child of the enemy. And in a sense, that's how we are, right? We are also children of the enemy by nature. But God didn't give us what we deserved. His love, it's not like the world's love. His love is this crazy and lavish love. It's, it's incredible. God has taken us, people who were his enemies, and he's called us children. And not just in name, but he has poured out his love. He has poured out his acceptance. He has poured out his favor, and he has given us his inheritance. He's told us that we're going to be safe with him forever. And that's kind of, that's astonishing news. And that is what is at the very basis of our faith. That relationship of a fatherly love. That's the basis. That's ground zero. But it's definitely not the end point. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We're in the family of God, but we're still new at it. We are now in God's family, but we're still getting used to what it means to belong to that family. Now, I gave you an illustration that was hitting the 20-year-olds. Here's one for 10-year-olds, all right? <laughs> this is, have, has anybody seen the, the movie uh, Into the Spider-Verse? Ambrose has, right? It's a, it's a, it's a cartoon about Spider-Man. Um, probably not a lot of us have seen it yet, but uh, it's actually pretty good. It tells the story of this kid whose name is Miles Morales. And he gets bitten by a radioactive spider, and all of a sudden, he starts to gain these superpowers, as tends to happen, right? And then, uh, right after that, all these other Spider-Men and Spider-Women come into his universe and team up with him to help him out. But because Miles has just recently gained these powers, he doesn't quite know what he's doing with them. He can't quite get it all to click. So he's, he's, he's showing these extraordinary abilities, but he can't quite get it under control. And so then when the big battle comes with the big bad guy that happens at the end of every superhero movie, he's just not ready. 
And so they have to leave him behind. I think that's actually not a bad picture of what it means to be in our status as members of the household of God. God, by the power of his spirit, has put these, given us these new tools. He's given us this new freedom that we don't have to live in sin anymore, that we get to live these righteous and holy lives, but, but it hasn't all clicked yet. And so we still stumble. We still wrestle with our sin. We don't always grasp the freedom that we have in Christ, and we don't always live out of it the way we should. But John wants us to know that we will. There is going to come a day when we will be totally purified, totally righteous, where we'll see Jesus face to face. And so that's where John starts off. He wants us to know that we are loved in this crazy way. That God has plucked us up out of our sin while we were his enemies. He has rescued us. He's taken us out of the domain of darkness. And he's put us into his own house. He's given us his Holy Spirit and he is transforming us more and more every single day. And he's guaranteed that one day we're going to be completely free. Utterly free from sin. From temptation. From evil. He's guaranteed it. It's going to happen. Period. That's the basis. We have a, a loving relationship with our Father. That's where we begin. And then John goes on to say, If... That's true. If it is true that you are now a child of God, then here's what your life should look like. He says the proof of that relationship, that fatherly relationship with God, is that it's going to be shown in the way we live. And he says that a lot of different ways. Verse 3, he says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves. Verse 6, he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7, he says, the one who does what is right is righteous. Verse 10, he says, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. He says, Christians are going to live holy lives. Now look, we are saved by grace. We are not saved by works. Every other religion on earth is going to give you a to-do list. It's going to say, here's the things that you have to accomplish in order to save yourself. Think this way, meditate this way, follow these rules, whatever it is. Work hard, and hopefully in the end, God will let you in, or you're going to transcend, or whatever it is. But if you're good enough, you'll make it. Not Christianity. Christianity says that because you cannot be holy, Jesus Christ was holy in your place. Because you have already brought condemnation upon yourself because of your sin, Jesus Christ has taken your punishment on the cross. And now, 
We can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, a few years back, I was telling that basic gospel message to my neighbor, who was a Muslim. And he was a, probably the best neighbor I ever had. Uh, a very moral, good man, very generous. And as I was explaining to him that, as Christians, we're saved by grace, he objected. He said, that's crazy. You can't think like that. If, if you really believe that, then you would just sin as much as you want to. You just do whatever you want and say, well, okay, but, but God's going to forgive me because he's a God of grace after all. Now, he didn't know it at the time, but that is a, a good objection. That's a very biblical thought, as a matter of fact, because Paul himself comes up with that objection when he's writing the book of Romans. He asks that very same question as he's imagining what people are thinking while they read his letters. In, in Romans 6, verse 1, he says, What are you telling me? Should we continue to sin so that grace might abound? Do you remember what Paul says? He says, of course not. By no means. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? He says, we were crucified with Christ. Our old self, it doesn't live any longer. So Paul and John, they're actually in lockstep here. This passage, it's saying the same thing. It's saying that Christ's death on the cross, it doesn't just take away the penalty for our sin, but he actually frees us from the power of sin so we can live righteous lives. Amen. The Holy Spirit not only cries out, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit not only shows us that we are the children of God, but he actually changes our hearts so that we start to desire the things that God desires. In other words, if you're a Christian, you will live righteously. Or you might think of it this way. On the outside, Christians are, might look very similar to people from any other religion. We're moral, we try to keep, follow the rules, we try to be upstanding members of society. But the difference between Christianity and religion is about what motivates us within. Religious people, they do good works out of fear. They do it so that God will love them. But Christians, we do good works because God loves us. And now, because of his spirit, we love him back. And we want our lives to glorify him. We want our lives to honor him. And it's true, in this world, we can't really know what's motivating people's hearts. Even in the church, right? You can have two people sitting next to each other in the pew, and their lives can, on the outside, look pretty much the same. Good people doing good things. But on the inside, one is living their life out of gratitude. Immersed in the gospel, aware that God has already given everything for them. And the other person is self-righteous. They're saying, I'm doing a good job. 
and I'm earning my way, and surely when I stand before God, he's going to let me in. But one thing we can't have, one thing you should not see in the church, and here's what John's main point is, really, is a Christian who lives in sin without remorse and without a desire to change. John says that's impossible. Because God, God does care about the way we live. You know, we're big on grace here. We talk about grace a lot. We want you to know that that sinners are welcome here. But we also want you to know that God does care about how you live. He cares about your life. Go to the Ten Commandments if you don't know what I'm talking about. And just read them. God wants us to love him above all else. He wants us to to glorify him, to honor him, to honor the Sabbath, to worship with his people. He wants us to desire him more than we desire any earthly thing. He wants us to love our neighbor. He wants us to honor those who are in authority over us. He wants us to pursue lives of sexual purity. He wants us to value human life. He wants us not to be filled with covetousness and envy in our hearts. And when his spirit dwells in us, we should start to see those things growing within us. A Christian's life should be defined by righteousness. Now that doesn't mean perfection, right? Of course not. We already preached on 1 John 1.8, right? Anybody who says he is without sin is a liar. We all have sin. We all stumble. But it does mean that Christians do not look like the rest of the world. We can't. The spirit inside of us won't allow it. Now we can try, right? We can try. We can try to, to, to live our own lives and, and do what, what we desire. And, but, but when we do, you know, if you're a believer, you know you will be filled with conviction. And, and sometimes you will be hit with the discipline of God. Grace does come to us all. God welcomes us. But I, it's, we need to say sometimes, maybe we, it seems like we shouldn't have to say it, but, but we do. It's, it's hard work to follow Jesus. It takes effort. Obedience is not easy. Temptation is tempting. That's why they call it that. It's easy to fall into temptation. It's attractive. The sin in our hearts desires it. Obedience on the other hand, it's hard. Right? Jesus didn't say, take up your sunglasses and your bathing suit and follow me. Right? He said, take up your cross and follow me. Right here in our passage, he says that when you follow Jesus, sometimes you're going to feel like an alien. He says, the world doesn't know us. Following Jesus, some days, it feels like dying. But we can't live any other way. 
in Christ by the power of his spirit, it is impossible for us to live any other way. I know someone who told me that when they came to faith, uh, they were in a relationship, and uh, that relationship had been a sexual relationship. And this person, after coming to faith, tried to continue that relationship as it had always been. But she couldn't. In the morning, she woke up overwhelmed with conviction. She realized she just couldn't live the way she used to live. That now her body was not her own, but it was actually the temple of the living God. And I share that to to tell you that, that John is saying something more than just, as Christians, you should not tolerate sin in your life. He's actually saying, as Christians, you should not be able to tolerate sin in your life. And if you are, it's a bad sign. It's not simply that Christians shouldn't keep sinning with impunity. It's that we can't. We can try. But but God's not going to let you do it. You can run far and fast, but eventually, just like the prodigal son, one day you're going to wake up in the slop and you're going to say, what am I doing here? And you'll run back home to the love of the Father. And maybe that's what we need to be thinking about here. Maybe that's why John puts it in these family terms about God's fatherly love, because the proof that he's talking about, the proof of our faith, it's not simply our behavior. It's not simply our righteous actions, but it's really about our family resemblance. Right? A few weeks ago, Pastor Mason was talking about that. That they recognized him by his walk. Because he walked just like his father. It's not about just our actions. It's about people who are dwelling with their heavenly Father, who are in His presence, and they are becoming more and more and more like Him. So that when people look at our lives, they see people who are becoming more like Jesus. Not just a list of good works, but hearts that desire fellowship with their Father. Hearts that mourn when they get off course. We're God's children. That's the basis of our relationship to God. And John says, one of the ways that you can tell if you have that relationship is by looking at your life. What does your life look like? Do you desire the things that he desires? Are you holy? Are you righteous? Are you becoming holy? Are you becoming more righteous? Can you see God working in your life? Now that can be kind of a scary question. But the third thing I want to share with you this morning is that our holiness is actually something that is guaranteed by God. Our holiness is guaranteed by God. 
Now, I hope some of you right now are, are thinking about your own lives right at this moment. I hope you are examining yourself. I actually do want you to ask yourself some hard questions. Like, is there sin in my life that I'm tolerating? Are there parts of my life where I have told God he cannot have access? I hope that you are taking John's warnings very seriously, especially if you consider yourself a Christian here. I hope that you hear John when he says in verse 8 that the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. I hope you hear that. Maybe there is sin in your life that you need to root out. Maybe it's like that story I told a moment ago. Maybe you are in a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. Or maybe you're hiding some addiction. Or maybe you're just letting yourself be trapped in anger or fear or envy. Whatever it is, whatever it is, is in your life, I hope that when you hear this passage, you will repent. I hope, you know, whatever it is, I, I hope you would feel free to share that with me or, or share that with Pastor Mason. Let us know. Let us know what's going on so that we can pray for you, so that we can support you. I hope that, that you would share that with, with us or with another brother or sister here in this room, but, but whatever it is, I hope you would choose to flee from sin and follow Jesus. But I also want to encourage you, Christians in this room, to read verse 9, where he says, No one who is born of sin will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. That's where our hope is today. That is the verse that is bringing us out to the hope and the truth of the gospel. That's where the promises are for us today. That's where the good stuff is. It's saying, ultimately, the reason why Christians are holy is not because we've finally worked up enough discipline. It's not because we've finally worked up enough strength within ourselves to finally go and get it done, but it is actually because the power of the living God has been planted in you, and like a seed, it's growing. It's bearing fruit. God's power is changing you. You remember that promise, right? He who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. God's at work in your life. And so that means, on, on one hand, if you are in this room this morning and you know that you are living outside of God's desires for you, and you don't care about that, if you know you're breaking His commandments and, and it doesn't bother you at all, you need to realize that you are not in control of your sin. You are not in control of, of your life. You're not in control of your temptation. It's in control of you. 
you're a slave. But if you call out to Jesus, he will set you free. On the other hand, if you're here this morning and you're struggling, you're wrestling, you see your sin and you hate it, and you have been fighting against it, and it keeps creeping back up, no matter how hard you seem to try, I want you to know this. You're not alone. You're not hopeless. God has not given up on you. In fact, God has given you a tremendous gift. First of all, he's given you this church where all around you, there are men and women who will fight with you, who will pray for you, who will support and encourage you, who understand what it's like to sin, who understand how hard it is to be obedient and to follow God, but who want to help you along that road. And we will. We will fight with you. We will intercede with you. We will support you. Just let us know how. But not only that, he has given you his spirit. He has given you his promise. He has given you his power so that even though this journey is long, even though this journey is hard, God has told us that he will not stop working on us. His seed is in us. He tells us that when Christ appears, one day we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This morning I want to invite us to take some time to pray. We have this moment marked out for our pastoral prayer. But I want to invite you, however God might be speaking to you right now. Whatever place there might be conviction of sin. That you take a moment and, and lay that before him. If there are people in your life who you know are, are, are in need of intercession in this regard, that you pray for them as well right now. But let's take a moment, let's go before the Lord, and then I'll, I'll pray in a, in a few seconds.